Welcome to the She Yearns Podcast. I am Cherry Strange, and I am so thankful you have joined us today. Thank you for being a part of this community. The She Yearns community exists to lead women to desire more of God in everyday life, making Him evident and desirable to others. Welcome to the podcast. If you don't know yet, Chad and I have eight children. Several of them came into our family speaking another language. They're adopted other than English and speaking only that language. Five non-English speakers across four years, to be exact. I speak and understand nothing but English. (laughs) I always tell people that if you have the privilege, you should live with those who cannot speak English. It is a riot. I've never laughed so hard so many days in my life. People ask me, how did you do it? I don't know. I guess I was laughing so hard on the inside and the outside. We got through it, particularly with the girls. Maybe not so much with those squirrely boys, but we did make it pretty easily with the girls. We are currently finishing up year seven, so it doesn't happen as frequently today, but about years four and five, situations like what I'm about to describe happened a lot. I believe we were at a football game, and the kids were in the stands talking amongst themselves. You know, during the game, it was getting to be about halftime. We had to watch the band, and then After the band played, they were going to get to go get a snack at the concession stand. So they were kind of talking about that. When it was about time to head that way, they asked if they could walk over and buy something at the concussion stand. (laughs) One of the older ones was irritated by the other's ignorance. Being ever so helpful, corrected their sibling loudly in the stands where everyone around them could hear by saying, no, it's not a concussion stand. It's a conception stand. And while everyone turned wide-eyed to stare at our commotion, I thought my spouse was going to fall off the bleachers backwards laughing so hard. Hyperventilating, doubled over, he barely made it to the conception stand and bought them whatever treat they wanted. I don't think he stopped laughing for the rest of the game. The point I want to make is this. Sometimes we encounter things in the Bible that we need to make sure we are clear on what is being communicated (laughs) so that we don't leave with a wrong understanding of the truth that may have more consequences than my illustration today. When you and I approach the Bible, and there arises a passage or a verse that might sound somewhat contradictory or out of place, which does sometimes happen to other teachings in the whole of the Bible. We should not ignore it or just skip over it because we're not looking for a fight here, but we do not need to be afraid to look intently at the Bible. There's nothing to be afraid of, and I think that's really important to note. I think sometimes you and I are afraid of what we might find or what we might uncover or for that matter, what we won't find that could sabotage our faith. Like I said, I'm not calling for you to pick a fight with another person over a discrepancy you see or start an argument over something that you've read on the internet or that they've read on the internet. That's not seeking truth, but it's sort of arrogant and it's ungodly behavior when we do that. What I do want to communicate clearly is that when you and I encounter something that causes concern in your spirit, in your mind, or that generates questions, There 
there's nothing to be fearful about. Ask. Ask a godly student of the Bible, mature in the faith. And if they don't know, this is how you know if you're on the right track. They're going to say something like, I don't know. Let me look into that question because that's a good one. And we need a satisfactory answer that's substantiated by the Word of God and not man if possible. So let's look into that. So they're going to give some kind of answer like that rather than uh, making something up. And you should be able to tell the difference. And you want to keep looking if you run into that. The absolute worst thing you can do in this type of situation is keep your questions back because the enemy uses this against you. It builds up. It causes you to question the reliability and the trustworthiness of the Bible and God himself. Don't do it. Today, I want to talk about one of these places in scripture that is often either left unquestioned or viewed as contradictory with other aspects of especially evangelical Christianity because we're covering it. It's just part of what we're we're looking at. It has to do with making our faith work. This is so vital to the health of a believer. How you perceive and receive this concept impacts every other spiritual aspect. It impacts the effectiveness of your prayers. It determines how you spend your time and your money. It largely orchestrates what you do with your life pursuits in general and specifically. It affects how you teach your children. It has the power to limit or stimulate your spiritual fruit-bearing ability. Depending on how you come out on this one issue will determine whether or not you and I become complete, as James describes, lacking in nothing. This undertaking calls for bravery. I think you will understand understand why, but let me spell it out for you. It's not just doing the work part, making your faith work. For most of us, the busybody in us comes out. We've got that part down. Making our faith work is not about doing good deeds and helping others. It's not about checking off everything on our list. It's the faith that drives the work, which may require us to sit and wait for long periods of time and not do anything and just trust the Lord and how all that comes together. It really is a faith workout. And here is the climactic verse in the passage. We're going to get up to it, but I want to jump to it real quick so that we see where we're centered today that can really create some angst in our thinking. It's going to be in James 2 verse 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. When you hear that or read that, the hairs on your possibly evangelical faith alone gospel believing arms should probably be standing on edge right about now. It should cause you to ask, what about where Paul writes? And your mind probably will be going to something that you know. Maybe you don't know the verse in reference, but let me give you one. Um, In Galatians 2, about 4 through 9, he writes, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. How do we make sense of all that? How do we make our faith work, or do we? To gain a better understanding, you and I need a willingness to look further, because we're not just going to see it right on the surface. We've got to make a choice. If you want to rake the leaves to see the grass, it's okay to scratch the surface. If you're happy and content with not really knowing anything but those two inconsistencies that seem inconsistent, 
consistent, then then that's okay. You're just going to scratch the surface. But if you are hoping for gold, you're going to have to dig deep. I am not satisfied with raking leaves. <laughs> I am digging for gold. I am that kind of girl. So we, if we want to do that, we've got to turn our attention to think about the purposes and the letters that were written. So Paul is writing to an audience and he's writing with the purpose and James is writing to an audience and with the purpose. So that's the first thing I want to note. Both of them are writing to their audiences to address key issues and to correct some errors. If you'll read their letters, that's what they're trying to do. That's the thing they have in common, but their audiences are different. Paul, when he's writing to Galatians, because that's where we read his verses from, he's writing to Gentile believers, those who are being misled. Other people are coming in, taking the gospel message that Paul has already given afterwards, and they're coming in, other Jewish teachers, teachers are coming in and sort of giving them the Jewish legal law and saying, no, 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 you cannot just believe in Jesus. You've got to also add circumcision and the other odd 613 commandments to it. It was a Jesus and gospel. And so Paul is writing them to say, no, 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 no. It is not a Jesus and. You do not need that. It is grace and grace alone. That is how you are justified. And so he's arguing in his writing that we're not under that law. This can't be what James is suggesting here because we have Acts 15. And I want to bring that out to you because remember, James is the leader of the church at Jerusalem. That is his job. And so when Paul has gone out and they have met these Gentiles and they have seen the work of God in their lives and he has transformed them and allowed them salvation and the Holy Spirit has come upon them and now they're trying to decide, okay, what do we do? How do we help them live out their lives? So they're going to send this letter to the Gentiles about now what? What do they do on a daily basis? James actually writes the letter and here's what he does to set it up. He says, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. So we know that James is agreeing with Paul in salvation. They are in an absolute agreement. And then he reminds the leaders that they are they're complimenting this understanding that they have in common. And then he penned this letter that is included in scripture instructing the Gentiles in what to do as believers in faith alone. And it's very, very simplistic. And it was not anything like circumcision and having to stick to all those commandments. It wasn't a Jesus and kind of instruction. James is not advocating a Jesus and anything. So then what is he doing when he's calling his audience to works? What is he trying to do? Well, let's put it in context and see what he's saying. This is James 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James is addressing not Gentiles, but Jews. Jews who have been dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. Remember, he he addresses that in the the opening of his book. Jews who were content in self-complacency. People descended from Abraham. Those who believed they didn't need to do anything. They could just 
be. <laughs> it was enough. They reflect people in our culture today who say they're Christians, who maybe walked an aisle at some point, or just think that because they go to church or because their family went to church or just deem themselves a Christian, that's all they have to do. That maybe they somehow obtained a get out of hell free card and got it stamped that they can live any way they want. Yet they have not been transformed from the inside out, not like James, not like the gospel declares a believer in Christ will be transformed. Rather than arguing that we are not under the law, James is advocating for the fulfillment of it. Remember, that's what Jesus said about himself. He said, I did not come to nullify the law. I came to fulfill it. And so that's what James is agreeing with. Paul is arguing on his side that it's not by seeking to fulfill an impossible righteousness do we make ourselves just before God. We can't do it that way. But by acknowledging our sin and accepting his salvation as a free gift of grace. That is what Paul is arguing for. James is arguing that that very faith which saves us is a faith that brings forth after fruits. That after you are saved, there's going to be fruit or it's not faith at all. So there are different arguments that they're using some of the same language for. Now, Paul's talking about works and his works are done with a view to get salvation. He's talking about works that get you into heaven, that God's favor might be one for being justified. That's not what James is talking about. James is talking about the works that are sprung out of a person because of what God has so graciously done. It is a fruit bearing that happens after salvation. So they're just different. They're different kinds of things that are going on, but the language can be confusing. He goes on to sort of expound his thinking by providing this argument from two different perspectives, but he's not in the argument and he's not pointing to a particular person according to the language in the commentaries. He's just making this arbitrary argument. So here it is. Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. At least they have a response is what he was saying. You don't even have a response. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. That's where it gets a little bit testy right there. So I'm telling you, it doesn't sound like this can be consistent, but I want to propose that there is a trail of consistency throughout Scripture. We have, we have our thoughts and beliefs stored in sort of boxes and categories and in drawers. And what James is trying to do is pull everything out and spread it on a picnic blanket. We are just super shocked with his method and we are blinded to the reality that it's not new. It's just the old stuff thrown out on the front lawn on a blanket. For instance, Isaiah 58, 7 through 9. Share your food with the hungry 
and give shelter to the homeless. This is God speaking to Isaiah to the people. Give clothes to those who need them and do not hide from relatives who need your help. Then your salvation will come like the dawn and your wounds will quickly heal. Your godliness will lead you forward and the glory of the Lord will protect you from behind. Then you will call and the Lord will answer, Yes, I am here. He will quickly reply. Then what Jesus said in Matthew, he's saying it himself. This is not a parable. This is not a story. This is not hyperbole. These are the words of Jesus about what is going to happen. This is chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. I'll try to summarize as best I can. When the Son of Man comes into his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Okay, so this is what is going to happen. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place sheep on his right, the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, come. You who are blessed by my Father inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. And he goes on and on and on. And he tells them, you know, you're going to come over here because of this. And then they say, Lord, when did we see you hungry? Or feed you, or thirsty, and you gave me drink. And in verse 40, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And then it changes perspectives. And then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And they will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry? And then he gives the same argument. And he says, Truly, I say to you, as you did not do it for one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. So it's a big deal. John also talked about this issue as a demonstration of love, which makes total sense because his whole message was calling us to love. So 1 John 3, 17 and 18 is this. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. Faith alone is dead. That is the message here with James. Not the saving faith, not the kind that justifies us and brings us into relationship with the Father, but the wordy faith, the kind that says, I walked an aisle and now I can do whatever I want. That's not faith. Talk is cheap. It's as if James is in agreement with Jesus once again that there should be good fruit found on a good tree. And with John 15, 8, that says, This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, that you stick so closely with me, Jesus says in that chapter, that you demonstrate Jesus everywhere and in everything you do. That is how we make our faith work. Now, what does it look like? That's really what we want to know. Once we reconcile these together, what is it going to look like? And this is where I would love to give you a bulleted list. (laughs) Instead, I cannot. But what I can do is point you again to Scripture, and that's really the best thing to do is point you to Scripture. And for this, we're going to go to Hebrews 10, 38 and 39. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Making your faith work is going to require unleashing your brave. 
because we know it goes right into the next verse. Faith is the assurance, the confirmation of things hoped for, divinely guaranteed, and the evidence of things not seen, the conviction of the reality. Faith comprehends as a fact that what cannot be experienced by the physical senses. For this kind of faith, the men and women of old gained divine approval. That is Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Maybe God is primarily calling you to seek Him first right now, and that is what you need to begin making your faith work today. Maybe it's in obedience that is born out of a desire rather than a duty. Maybe it's to grow you through your prayer life, and that is how you're going to make your faith work right now. Could it be that there's been this nudging to be involved in an organization or a cause that is a life-giving work? Some way that you need to be showing compassion, like when a person needs food or clothing, or you need to go somewhere with a group. I don't know, but maybe that's it. Or maybe making your faith work right now looks more like Rahab when she gave a right response, demonstrating she understood who God really was and what she needed to do at that moment because of that. There are hundreds of nuances. That's why we have Hebrews 11. You know, Abel just gave his best and his first, and that was the testimony that he left for us. The parents of Moses just saw something different in their newborn and hit him against the rules for a measly three months. I mean, really, what difference was that going to make? I mean, he was either going to get taken and killed or eaten by alligators. I mean, what was the big deal? Was it really going to make a difference? But they did it. They did it in faithfulness and obedience because they thought they should. And boy, did it make a difference. I don't know what it means for you. I know for me right now, it means stepping out in some areas beyond my fears to walk in obedience, to walk the thing out. It also means serving my guts out, giving my time away, not worrying about how it's going to play out in the future, trusting God every morning to give me the wisdom to follow hard after Him for that day. Making your faith work has everything to do with living out your life in obedience to your Savior, full of grace for His purposes. I wish it was a five-step program or some kind of list we could check off, but then it wouldn't be faith, would it? It's my pleasure to dig for gold with you today. We did some gold digging, didn't we? We went deep. For you are not one to shrink back and be destroyed, my friend. Ask God to unleash your brave, to make your faith work for His glory. A double dog dare you. According to the authority of God, you can petition Him for it in confidence. It's what He wants for you in your life today. For it is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. Just ask Him. And I can't wait to be with you next time on the She Earns Podcast. Thank you again for tuning in today. We will be releasing a new episode every week. I would invite you to become a subscriber. And it really makes a difference when you share something here that you find helpful or encouraging. You make an impact. You may never understand the value or difference your suggestion or encouragement made in the life of a friend or casual acquaintance just by passing a resource along. So please share what you find here with others. I would personally be grateful. Don't hesitate to like us on Facebook or Twitter or leave a review. 
For more truth-saturated, gospel-centered, spiritually insightful encouragement, please go to www.sheyearns.com where you will find reading plans, articles, and other resources to help stir a desire for God into your everyday life.